0: Alright, here's what we are doing. We are in the middle of a study of uh, the of the worldview. Whether it's the humanist worldview, Marxist Leninist worldview, the cosmic humanist worldview, or the biblical Christian worldview. And I know that this is not easy to see all the way up here, which is why in weeks past we've given you charts so that you have them right in front of you. Everything up here is gonna be a little bit more difficult to see, but at least you, you have something up there in front of you. What we've done is in the past weeks, we've we've compared each one and we're doing really, we're just doing a a cursory uh, introduction of them. I advise you and encourage you to study David Noble's book, Understanding the Times, which goes through all of these different areas with some detail. Especially this book, this is the uh, unabridged um, book. This one has all sorts of resources and quotes from the authors uh, of humanist or Marxist books themselves. And so this is very helpful. There is an abridged one that's a little bit smaller, and I think many of you have been given that book when Dr. Noble was here. He gave it, made it available so that you could have it. And you can go through and read it in in just a a very condensed form. But you, you read that book and you're going to have a pretty good understanding of how these views fit. And what you're going to discover is that America really is dominated right now by a secular humanist worldview rather than by the Christian worldview. So much so that humanism really characterizes more Christians than, uh, than biblical Christianity does. And what we want to do is understand these things so that we can go to the Word of God and, and so that we can know what the Bible says in all of these areas and we can defend it. Especially today, what we are really concerned about is the tendency within churches to, uh, to make spirituality and Christianity something that affects Sunday only. Uh, All we're concerned about sometimes in our churches is our own programs, what we're doing, but we don't get involved and speak toward righteousness when it affects the rest of our culture. And it's true that the Bible speaks not only of theology, but the Bible speaks toward every discipline in life. Anything that you would study or go into. When it comes to philosophy, the Bible speaks toward it. ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, history. We haven't been left on our own to discover meaning and significance in all these areas. The Bible has given us answers. And so we're trying to understand the other positions so that when we recognize them in our own life, we can reject them or... recognize them in the culture around us we reject it but then we also recognize and want to understand what the Bible has to say regarding those things here is another chart that was given to you. And I'm sorry that I don't have copies of this one to, that, to reproduce. But the very first day that David Noble was here, he handed out a chart that looked like this. And you were to fill it out, fill in all the details yourself. Well, I've gone back and filled in all the details so that you would see it. And these are the scriptures that support a Christian view. And this is just really, this is just the beginning. There's so much other scripture, but he's citing the first ones, the kind of ones that are, are most Obvious, And so, he talks about all the different categories. Within those categories, we're going to see them in a creative order as to how God created and how it happens. But then we'll also see it in a redemptive order, so that we see it not only in the Old Testament, but we see it in the New Testament. And so, when it comes to theology in the beginning uh in the beginning god it's assumed that there is a god and he has revealed himself and so that is the biblical christian idea uh and uh, of theology when it comes to philosophy which we already studied the study of the love of wisdom and we recognize that true wisdom comes begins with the fear of god uh in the beginning and that really is what philosophy studies uh what is the nature of reality how do you understand and know that reality, and how did it all begin i mean that 's what they 're talking about and for for us, we recognize that ultimate reality is both physical and spiritual or supernatural so there 's natural and supernatural and so we recognize that there is a there's a dualism there's a there's there's both supernatural and natural, whereas materialists or or uh, i 'm sorry secular humanists are materialists because they believe that there is no soul there is no God there is no supernatural and so everything around us is matter and as a result that's going to affect everything else that they believe as well. Uh, With ethics, which is what we're studying today, you go and you recognize in Genesis 2.9 that there was the knowledge of good and evil. And so there is an idea of someone making rules, someone who's defining this is good and right, this is evil, and this is what you should be avoided. And so how we come to understand that, uh, we're going to have a a quite different approach than what the humanists will. Uh, Biology, we believe that they were all created after their kind. And then you can just go on and on. God created us as a living soul. With psychology, we believe that we do have a soul. And I'm not saying that there is Christian psychology. What I'm saying is that the Bible has the only ultimate answers for the soul. And most most of what is called psychology today is humanism that is called Psychology, but humanism doesn 't even believe that there is a soul, so they 're ultimately dealing only with behavior behaviorism, and so really they 've taken a good term, which is the study of or, or the the um, ministry to a soul, and they don 't even believe you have a soul, and so they 've corrupted it and so now anything that 's called psychology, even Christian psychology, is often. It's humanistic psychology that has a verse attached to it. What we really want to do is we want to understand the answer that the Bible presents. And I'm just, I'm just mentioning it because we studied it so much last week and I can't go into all the details. And so those of you who have more questions about it, you can either read the book or we have tapes available or uh, we can talk more later. Uh, sociology would be how we view the family. Obviously, God created the family and He told us to be fruitful and multiply. When it comes to law, God is the one who has given law when it comes to politics, God established government, and he established government to, uh, to punish those who are uh, guilty and injustice, to defend those who are innocent. And then there's economics, and certainly economics is not something that is uh, godless. God is the one who gave us all things. He's the owner of all things, and so we need to recognize private property there and then history. And then Christ speaks toward all of this as well. Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. In the beginning was the Word that speaks toward philosophy. And then toward ethics, there is John 1, 9 and John three nineteen through 20, that He is the light. And when He came into the world, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so that is the difference. Christ is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And so He is good. Now today, we're going to study that ethics. And so we're going to get an idea going back here. We're going to look at ethics and find that there's ethical relativism for secular humanism and, and notice that it, it, it compares with cosmic humanism because whether you start off by saying there is no God or whether you say everything, everything is God ultimately you're saying the same thing there is no God and you're going to come to many of the same conclusions and some of the same effects such as ethical relativism now Marxist-Leninism is not going to produce ethical relativism it's going to produce a whole different kind of ethic and that's what we call proletariat morality or essentially what that's really describing is um, proletarian morality is whatever is best for the class or for for the party, for the society as a whole, that is what's good and so we'll talk about that and then ethical absolutes. Ultimately, the question we're asking today is, who determines right and wrong? Or you might ask the question, who makes the rules? That's what really is being asked. Who is it that makes the rules? And when it comes to ethics, that's what we're talking about. And so there are a number of possibilities. If man makes the rules, then we're going to come to ethical relativism. If the party makes the rules, or if the government makes the rules, uh, then you're going to come to proletarian morality. And if God makes the rules, then you're going to come to moral ethical absolutes. Does anyone doubt that ethical relativism is, uh, is the accepted and dominant ethic within America today? Do you doubt that? No one doubts it. I I don't think that anyone doubted it. And frankly, uh, you'd have to be blind to miss it. Now, uh, this is not a political statement. It's not a political endorsement. I'm not trying to make any kind of political thing whatsoever. But Alan Keyes has written a book. It's called Our Character, Our Future. And within it, he talks about... uh, he talks about the ethical relativism, relativism where we find ourselves and, and how we've gotten here. And, well, let me, let me read a, a couple of things uh, that come from this. Uh, Other nations find their identity and cohesion in ethnicity or geography or cultural tradition. But America was founded on certain ideas about freedom, about human dignity, about social responsibility. So in other words, the American idea is not about race, is not about a certain geography, and the American idea is not even about a great economy. It's not about wealth and money. The American idea had to do with freedom. That freedom was given to us, as we talked about, it was an inalienable right, which means that it was given by a higher authority. Because there was that higher authority, that freedom was not a freedom to do whatever you pleased. It was a freedom to live responsibly. And when you live responsibly, when you live within a certain ethic, under the authority who gave you the freedom, then you could enjoy that freedom. What he is essentially going to tell us within this book, what others have told us as well, is that when you deny that the authority has given us rules and regulations and we live under a certain code of conduct, when you deny that authority, then you inevitably are also denying the freedom that he grants. And so, where there is ethical relativism, there will ultimately become a loss of freedom, because when there's ethical relativism, and there is no higher authority telling us what is right and wrong, or making the rules for us, eventually, every man does what is right in his own eyes. And when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, only chaos can result. And when there is chaos, guess what is the answer? The governmental answer to that chaos will be tyranny and that is where tyranny always comes in and so if there is a denial of God as the authority then there will eventually be the loss of freedom and so when people are saying that ethical relativism is ultimately freeing people they have mislabeled that whether it's women's lib whether it's uh, uh, the gay rights movement or whatever freedom that they're trying to find the, the freedoms you know, free sex or free drugs or free whatever it may be. They're seeking freedom. They're seeking from being under something, some oppressive regime that would uh, codify their conduct. And instead of being free, they find themselves under tyranny, and that's where it always leads. And so I don't know if anything I've made, anything I've just said made sense. So let me read some more uh, from the book, all right? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, in the public arena, There are innumerable spokesmen clamoring for public attention today. Whether from the right or the left, the focus and crux of their message is basically the same. They talk about money. They talk about budgets, deficits, gross national product, and trade imbalances. It's the economy, stupid, is their mantra. But you and I both know, if we are willing to look at ourselves in the eye, what the truth is. America's problems are not merely economic. Why is it that we spend so much money dealing with welfare and illegitimacy? Why is it that we spend so much money dealing with crime and violence in our streets? Why is it we even spend so much money dealing with the problems of irresponsible behaviors that contribute to the decline of the health of this nation? I think you know in your heart what the real answer is. We don't have money problems, we have moral problems. And I have to agree with exactly what he's stating. We're not going to remain a free people if we insist on being a corrupt and licentious people, is another statement. And I'd agree with that. It was moral courage that built America. That is the true foundation of freedom. If we're going to have an American dream, and American freedom, then there must be American character and there must be a strong ethic that is, not, that is more than just everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. In uh, another chapter, calls he calls the crisis of character. Here's what Mr. Keyes says. The moral requirements of freedom are clear. According to the Declaration of Independence, our freedom comes from a transcendent authority from the Creator. If it comes from a certain authority, it has to be exercised with some respect for that authority. We do not have the right to do anything we please because if we act in that way, we will be rejecting and undercutting the authority from which our freedom ultimately comes. And that's exactly what I was saying. Uh, that's what I was saying before. Here's one other example that I'm just going to refer to. He calls it a, uh, a clear and present danger. He says Health and Human Services Secretary Donna Shalala has sounded the alarm. This was back in. Uh, this would be back in. Uh, well, probably eight years ago, it would be my guess, just at, during the Clinton administration. So that's the Human Sec- Services Secretary was Donna Shalala at that time. She's on the alarm because teen drug use is on the rise. On the rise, according to a recent University of Michigan survey of 51,000 eighth-grade through high school students, teen smoking and drug use rose a bit last year for the first time in more than a decade. Ms. Layla is right to be concerned, though she probably doesn't want to consider an important factor contributing to a halt in progress against teen drug abuse. Thanks especially to Nancy Reagan, among others, the 1980s became the just-say-no decade for kids. Despite ridicule from the late-night comedians and other trendy barometers of the entertainment culture, Mrs. Reagan pushed an approach to drug education based on self-control. Sadly, Donna Shalala and her cohorts in the Clinton administration represented a return to the permissiveness that conquered America's moral consciousness in the 60s. Ms. Shalala herself has been a prime mover in the administration's campaign to make condoms the instrument of choice for AIDS prevention. Given the contradictory evidence on condom effectiveness against the AIDS virus, this is a high-risk approach, tantamount to playing Russian roulette with the lives and health of millions of Americans, especially among the young. But we can't expect teens to practice abstinence, can we? After all, do human beings have moral uh, sexual self-control? Do they have more sexual self-control than rabbits? The condom czars, Ms. Shalala, and the still vocal former Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders think not. So does AIDS czar Christine Gebby, who has declared herself offended by America's unwillingness to appreciate the joys of sex. So it's just a yes to sex Show self-control the door. And as you do that, as you show self-control the door and remove any kind of uh, moral boundaries, then obviously there will be increase in drug use, there will be increase in immorality, and with that will come all of the the breakdown of a a society and of a culture. We live in a time when just about every domestic problem we face is at its roots a problem of moral character. Man, that's a pretty good statement. At its roots, most of the issues that we're dealing with is a problem of moral character and ethics. Yes? The name of this book is Our Character, Our Future. It's Alan Keyes. And essentially, they are short chapters that are... Um, Uh, his, his speeches and different editorials that he's written and it's found here and you're welcome to come up and look at this afterward. He refers, by the way, to the 1960s again where there was a removal from some sort of ethic. There was, a, there was a code, there was a Ten Commandments. And even if you weren't a Christian, at least you had a respect for the Ten Commandments. The 60s became an abandonment of that where there was a distrust of authority and the distrust of authority and the throwing off of that has resulted in the, the extreme senses of, of humanism that we are now under effect uh, with. And let me just refer you to this. I'm not going to say anything about it. But there is a article that I want to make available to you today if you'd like to take it home and read it. Please don't read it during the second sermon. Service. But if you'd like to take this article home, uh, similar to what I handed out last week, this is called A Decade Overrated and Unmourned, and is written by Peter Collier and David Horowitz. And essentially, this is, a, this is more of a public and policy statement. It's not getting into the biblical definition of ethics, but it's saying this is what has happened as a result of throwing off a biblical ethic or, or moral absolutes. And since we've thrown that off, here how, here's how it's affected families, here's how it's affected governments, And if you want this, then here's what I have to ask. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, and rather than collating them all and stapling them, I have them on nice, neat little stacks. And if you take one and place it on top of each other, then you staple it at the end. They're all available. They're right here for you. I know it's a little bit of work, but you appreciate what you work for a whole lot more anyway. (laughs) So, uh, So you can have that afterward. All right, here's what we're asking. If man makes the rules... If man makes his own rules, then we have ethical relativism because every man does what is right in his own eyes. By the way, every man doing what was right in his own eyes didn't work in the book of Judges. If you want to read about chaos, read the book of Judges, where every there was no king in Israel and every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. All right, So there was a serious problem there. The problem wasn't that they needed a king. The problem was that they needed rule. They needed government. And ultimately they wanted a king, but what they needed to understand is that even that king must live under the rules. And so a number of years ago, about my guess is two hundred and fifty years ago. Is it Samuel Rutherford Is that correct? who wrote Lex Rex? Can someone help me out? Lex Rex is says the law is king, and so even in England he was saying the king isn 't the authority. the king is under a certain authority, and only when you recognize that there is an authority or a moral code that is greater than the king, only then can you have, uh, then, only then can you have truth structure, only then can you have ethics and, and real life. By the way, I do have a couple of other books I can recommend up here. Francis Schaeffer wrote a Christian manifesto. There was the Communist Manifesto. There was the Humanist manifestos, one and two, that were written. And I do have the Humanist Manifesto up here, if you want to read something that is... uh In the 1930s, they established goals that are being... Fulfilled today, and in 1973 they wrote the second humanist manifesto. And if you want to read how we have gotten to where we are, this tells you. I mean, this is by design. It was, it was on purpose. How we would get to the, to the Supreme Court rulings that have come down since the 60s. How we have gotten to where education is dominated by secular humanism, media. I mean, you just go on and see. Here's the blueprint. Here's what they had in mind, and uh, so you can read this. But if you wanted to get a better perspective, Francis Schaeffer gives the Christian Manifesto, and within the Christian Manifesto here, there is so much that he talks about when it comes to God and ethics and how that. uh, I mean, he talked about how the American Foundation was built upon Blackstone's Law Commentary, and how that Blackstone's Law Commentary was essentially pointing back to Scripture, and he's telling us that there is an ethic. There, there is someone who makes the rules that is far better than just a, a man doing what he wants to do um, and it creates a problem. Folks, I'm sorry. I'm trying to say too much uh, but I have to refer you to one more book. Erwin Luther. Twelve myths that Americans believe. There are two chapters within this that are worth, worthy of your... Uh, well, the whole book is worthy of your efforts but when it comes to ethics especially you would, uh, you'd want to read myth number three. The myth is we can have morality without God. Because that is exactly what people are saying. They are saying that there is, it is possible to have morality and uh, ethical system, you can have it without God. For instance, i told some of you, I'll tell the rest of you in a little bit, that I was golfing with someone uh, who is a self-proclaimed atheist. And as we were talking, uh, well, there, well, I mean... There weren't a lot of things that we could see eye to eye on, and so what he uh, what he was describing is he said, uh, and I had said, look, any any culture that forgets God is go- going to lead uh, is going to lead to moral problems and troubles because they're selfishness. He said, wait a second. He said, not all atheists are selfish, and I said, I'm not indicating that. However, and I didn't say this, but I wish I'd thought of it. Any atheist who is not selfish is Living according to the image of God that has been created within them and they're not living according to their own logic. Because if you reject God, your own logic is definitely going to lead toward ultimate selfishness. And there are humanists out there who are not only humanists in their philosophy, but they're humanitarians. They want to do good for mankind. They want to do good for other people. But if they're doing that, they're showing a value for humanity that only comes when you recognize that we've been created in the image of God for instance, if you take evolution and their philosophy to its extreme ends, if you take materialism to its extreme ends, what is it that would make humanity or the human, human life uh, valuable? There would be absolutely nothing valuable or worth preserving if you take evolution to its re- end, after all. Um, well, let's see. After all, we're really no more valuable than any other, you know, lower life species. And so, there's not going to be a respect for human life. And why would you want to do good to your neighbor if they're just other animals? It's all survival of the fittest. And I'm the fittest and I'm out to protect myself. I mean, that's where it would carry out. But here's this other thought. If there is no mind, if there is no supernatural, then setting the rules for myself, I can't even be confident that I've set the right rules. Uh, Darwin said this much when he said if we are just evolved animals then how can we trust our ideas about I mean if, if there is no soul uh, if there is no ultimate mind and if our ideas are a matter of chemical bypo- you know by- if they are a byproduct of chemical reactions what I am describing is there is the physical brain and if my mind is nothing more than the chemistry of my physical brain then, how can I trust it because someone else 's chemical impulses are just as valuable or just as valid as mine, and that 's where you get to this moral relativism because now i can 't condemn anyone 's ideas because it 's just a matter of it 's a matter of chemistry it 's a matter of matter it has nothing there 's nothing supernatural or soul or mind that 's behind it and so ultimately, if you follow humanism and, and if you follow atheism to its natural end. How can we stand and say that Hitler was wrong in what he was doing? How do we know that his chemistry wasn't better than my chemistry? You see, how do we know that his function, the functions of his brain weren't better than the functions of my brain? And so ultimately you have no basis to condemn Stalin or uh, Jeffrey Dahmer or anyone else. And ultimately, they don't condemn those people. They think, well, what we need to do is we need to reform them. And that gets back into my psychology session, which was last week. But th- th- we're on a different issue today. If you don't start with God, then there's not going to be human, uh, human life. And if there's no value to human life, if there's no value to uh, human dignity, then you cannot be a true humanitarian. And let me kind of identify those. The word humanist and the word humanitarian are really distinct. As a Christian, should you be a humanist? No. You should not follow secular humanist philosophy, which is a rejection of God and all the worldview that comes with it. Should you be a humanitarian? The only true humanitarian should be Christians. Because we recognize that man has been created in the image of God. And therefore, we should be, uh, we should be taking care of those that are poor. We ought to be be, uh, uh, leading the charge when it comes to medical research because we ought to have a compassion for people's needs. Uh, and so we want to see them treated well. We want to see food provided for them. We want to educate them. And we want them to read so they can read the Bible. You see all that different kind of stuff? We should be humanitarians. But humanists will want you to think that only humanists are humanitarians. And it's just not true. A humanitarian cares for and loves mankind. And if you follow humanist philosophy, they rightly will not become humanitarians. Well, anyway, this man says that, hey, he said, said, I don't think that you're selfish because you deny that there's a God. And my reaction to that is, if you're not selfish, even as a humanist, it is not because you're logically following your ideas and it's resulted in your unselfishness. You are unselfish because you're created in the image of God and you're still carrying over the effect of that. For instance... In our culture, we are still, at this point in effect, we are still carrying over the influence of the Ten Commandments and the uh, golden rule and things like that. Those things, given by God, are over us. And we're doing everything we can to rid ourselves of that. And so we're not an entirely godless... Culture where we've gotten rid of all of those vestiges or all of those influences upon us. We're becoming more and more so because as we are trying to cast those off, more and more people are not affected by them. However... Even if you throw the Ten Commandments out of all the courtrooms, if the Ten Commandments are being taught in homes, and if there is morality is being taught within churches, then there are still going to be those people who are affected by them. And so no matter how hard the humanists have tried to rid ourselves, or to rid our nation from the influence of the the Ten Commandments, it's still there. Now what we need to do is we need to be vigilant in making sure that we are proclaiming uh, relativism. By the way, Again, you look at the, at, the, at the public school scenario, and again, don't, don't misunderstand me. I am, not a, uh, I am not out to get public school. I'm not doing everything I can to talk them down, okay? I grew up through a public school. I appreciate Christians that are still in the public school ministering to them. But I do recognize that public education has become the primary tool... Uh, ...to advocate secular humanism and to educate our whole culture within that, okay? Think about this, though. Within our our public school system, they teach that there is no God. They teach that we are just matter and that we are animals, higher evolved evolved animals. There is no value uh, to human life. And then they wonder why there are no values, why there's no ethic, why there's no morality... Why is it that teenagers go around shooting each other? Why is it they beat each other up for a pair of shoes? And So now you know what they're doing? Now we need to not only have, you know, we need to have evolution training, then go from evolution class into sex education class, and then you have to leave that and go into values class? I mean, they're doing everything that they can to give values and teach character. in in this void where there is no God and there is no reason for the absolute. And essentially, what you see lived out among many of our teenagers is that they are the ones who are only... They are true and they are consistent with that philosophy. You follow that philosophy and it consistently leads to everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, no respect for each other, and, and chaos. That's where it leads. Well... I have done a lousy job of trying to explain all the details of that, but fortunately, you have plenty of books and articles that you can read to get straightened out. I'm doing my best to try to catch you up on all this. There is a difference, though, between when a man decides what is right for himself, and therefore, you know what they're you know what they're saying. I mean, homosexuality, they have their rights, and adultery, they have their rights, and and uh, you know, you, eventually. Uh, Pedophiles—they're going to have their rights because that's just their choice. And where there are no absolutes, no one can stand up and say that is wrong, and what they're doing is wrong, and condemn them. And the extreme would be Jeffrey Dahmer, or or the extreme would be. Uh, Charles Manson or Hitler and saying, hey, ultimately, how can you condemn them if there are no absolutes? They, they're left on, they're left on, sh- on sand. Well, there is another alternative. And the other alternative is who makes the rules, and that is that the party or the, the communist party, the whole communist group, the collective group together, they make the rules. And so essentially what they're saying is, what benefits the party is okay. And if it hurts the party, it's not okay. In other words, it is okay to steal from the rich as long as you give to the poor. See what I'm saying? Now, that's a, that's a communist ethic. They're saying it's okay to steal over here as long as you're giving over here and as long as you're accomplishing the purpose over there. It's okay to kill as long as you, in revolution, are bringing about the greater good for the, long, for the most number of people through the communist party. Now, listen. Closely tied to this one. Obviously not the same. But closely tied to that is the, is the ethic of Islam. I mean, that's kind of baffling when you start thinking, how, how, do, is, how do these Islamic terrorists justify going out and murdering women, children, people even of their own race? How, how can they justify that? They justify it by saying that that murder is okay as long as you're not killing another faithful Islamic person. But if you kill an Islamic person, then that is the, that's blasphemy. That's the greatest evil that you can do. And so, they're similar. I'm not relating them. I'm not equating them. I'm just saying that they're similar. Okay? But that's the idea of the proletariat morality. That's how they could justify the French Revolution. The French Revolution is, mostly, they, they killed most of the Christians. They, they essentially killed all the Christians. How do you justify something like that? Well, it's for the greater good of the whole party. And, uh, or of the whole society and, and that's what they try to do. Um, Stalin, how do you justify going and killing hundreds of millions of your own people? Again, that's the only way that you can justify it. That's the only way you can live with yourself is through proletariat morality. Alright, there is another there is another option and that is who makes the rules, who defines right from wrong and that is God and that's where we get to moral, ethical absolutes and that is where I want to tell you how exactly God has given us this. I'm going to talk about uh, the definition of of ethical or moral absolutes uh, as a circle. Starting broader, getting toward the the center. And we start by showing that God has given us moral absolutes within our own conscience. Someone please refer to Romans 2, 14 through 15. Is there anyone who can get that? Let me remember. I think it was in John... Eight, that Jesus was speaking about uh, man's conscience and the conscience that was bothering when Jesus was riding on the ground. Uh, people had come and accused a woman who was caught in adultery, and their conscience uh, affected them. So there's something going on in, in their heart, inside of them. Romans two fourteen through fifteen. Someone please read that out loud, Brian. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These having not the law are a law unto themselves. But show the word of the law written in their hearts, their time thought of their thoughts meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Alright. So that would be the law written on their heart, their conscience, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. All of that is referring to the conscience we all recognize that there is a there there's this sense that god has created us and there are certain things and that is by the way what i get back to with uh, when i talk about uh, a humanist who is unselfish and who has some morals to him, they're living according to their conscience. They're living according to the image of God created in them. They're not living according to the logic of their philosophy lived out. Okay. In other words, they are moral in spite of their humanism and atheism. They're not moral because of it, is the, would be the idea. And the conscience is what has to do. That has to do with it. So the conscience, simply by your conscience, you know that there are certain things that are right and wrong. However, A conscience must be trained by something greater than itself. Because one person will say, and and I'm citing an example from uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, Uh, one pagan might say, my conscience tells me that it is okay to burn a wife with her deceased husband. He died, and now the wife will be burned alive with his body. My conscience tells me that that's okay. And so then the, uh, a British person back in, in the day may have had to have said, well, my conscience says that I'm going to pu- punish you for murder if, uh, if, if you commit that kind of in, in injustice. So now if we're simply left with our conscience and one person lives by their conscience and another by their conscience and everyone lets their conscience be their guide, then in many ways we're back to everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, Right. And so instead what we need is we need a conscience and we're not denying that we have it. We have a conscience but that conscience must be trained. And that conscience is trained by something objective. And that is by Scripture. By the Word of God itself. Anything in Scripture now is going to become the, the sharpening tool to sharpen our conscience. I want my children to have a sensitive conscience, but I don't want them to have a, have a sensitive conscience that has been trained by my conscience, by my ideas of right and wrong. I want them to have a sensitive conscience that has now been ruled and governed by uh, the Scriptures themselves. Let's look at two verses. Deuteronomy 29.29, 29, if someone will get that. Any volunteer? please great thank you and Second Timothy 3.16 thank you Mike alright Tracy go ahead Deuteronomy 29.29 when you have it Those things that are revealed, these are the words of God that are given. And so there are some black and white things that are clearly revealed, and that would be the word of God, and that's the scripture that, that guides our conscience. Uh, and then Mike, 2 Timothy three, sixteen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. Alright? So the idea is it's all about righteousness. And so it's going to teach me what is right. It's going to show me when I'm not right. It's going to help me get right. That's correction. And then it's going to show me how to stay right. That's instruction in righteousness. So it's teaching in righteousness, correction in righteousness. Uh, what were the other... Teaching... Doctrine repro- in righteousness, reproof in righteousness, correction in righteousness, and instruction in righteousness. All of those are telling us that the Bible guides us in what is right. And so who is it that, gives, that makes the rules? Who is it that tells us right from wrong? It would be Scripture. And that's what God has given to us through Scripture. And yet, even there, is the Scripture enough for people to, uh, to actually do what is right? I mean, here we have our conscience, and here we have scripture, and so we have a definition of of what is right. But is this what makes is this what makes us right? Is this what ultimately allows us to have a ethic and live morally? Plenty of us have the Ten Commandments. All the, the Ten Commandments just show us that we haven't lived up to it. So that's the goal of the Ten Commandments: is to lead us, to show us that we're not right, and to show us that there is something else that we need. And so if it shows us something else that we need, then that's ultimately going to lead us to the center of this right and wrong, and that would be Jesus Christ. And the passage for this is John 1, 14 through 18. Let's all turn there and see about Christ as he defines light from darkness. But not only does he define it, he now enables us to live a life that is righteous and pleasing to God John one fourteen through eighteen The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, "This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me." And of its fullness we have received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is uh, not necessarily referring to him as the light, but this is telling us that grace and truth, that balance that is revealed, is revealed through Jesus Christ. Uh, It tells us in verse uh, 4 of John 1, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In other words, he was the light of the world, and the men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And the whole idea is Jesus Christ is the ultimate definition of right and wrong. He's the one, the only one who has lived according to God's rules. He is the only one who has lived a perfectly moral, righteous life, and lived up to a perfect ethic. And as a result, his life becomes an example for us. But if his life is an example, it's got to be far more than that. Because many people think of Jesus as being the example, and they try to follow that example, but they're not able to. And so far more than being an example, He is the Savior. Because ethics and the morals, and the law, the rules show us that we haven't pleased God. And so Jesus is the only one who's able to do that, and He shows us our need uh, for, for the Savior. And now Jesus becomes the one who takes our sins upon Himself. He became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And now we can not only be declared righteous and made right with God so that we can have fellowship with Him. But now we can become righteous as He is living through us. And the Spirit of God produces a change that is from the heart out. And that is ultimately the definition. So God is the one who defines right from wrong. He's defined right from wrong in our conscience. He's given us the rules that are written on our heart. He's defined right from wrong and given us rules that are written in Scripture. He's defined right from wrong and given us rules that are exemplified through Jesus Christ. And we need to proclaim that. Last, The last thing that I'm willing to do, and I know that I've tried to cram a lot of information in this, but I want to look at an Old Testament example of a culture that had forgotten God. And because they forgot God, they just went down in a heap of ashes. Ezekiel 22. Most of you are familiar with Ezekiel 22 verse 30 which says, So I saw a man among them who would make up a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it but I found no one. In what context is that written? What are the walls? He's saying I'm looking for someone who will build up where these holes have come into our wall and into our fortress. There's no safety. There's no protection. The bad guys can get out, uh, can can get in, and uh, our people, you know, our children, they they can escape. There's just no safety that is here. What are the walls that were broken down? If you go back to the first verse, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Now, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Show her all her abominations. And within these next verses, we're going to discover that the walls that were broken down were the spiritual walls, the moral, ethical walls that were broken down. He, says, he said, "Say to the city, thus says the Lord God, this city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come. she makes idols within herself to defile herself." You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourself with the idols which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near and have come to the end of your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to all the nations and a mockery to all countries. Those near and those far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult. Look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you, they have made light of father and mother. In your midst, they have oppressed the stranger. In you, they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you, are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you, are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst, they commit lewdness. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. And in you, they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife, another lewdly defiles his daughter in law, and another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood, you take usury and increase, you have made profit from your neighbors by extortion. In other words, all these different things that he was citing are ethical violations. There's a loss of ethic, there's a loss of morality. The walls are broken down. Are the ethical, moral, spiritual walls that are broken down? And he says, "Why is it that all of these things have come?" It's because I started. I stopped reading far too soon. Did you read the end of verse twelve? And you have forgotten me, says the Lord God. You see, when you forget God, there now are no walls. The walls that God has established would be His commands, His rules. And those walls were given not because He's a gargantuan killjoy who's out to ruin our fun. Those walls were established, as the Bible says, for our good. And if they're given for our good, they're meant for protection, they're preservation. But when we forget God and we cast Him off and we cast off all of His rules, then the walls are broken down and (coughs) and there's no more safety. And the greatest problem in trying to rebuild those walls is not pointing out the Ten Commandments to people. The greatest issue we need to do is we need to remind people about God. They have forgotten God. And we are living in a day in which we have definitely thrown off God or forgotten God. We've tried to remove Him from every part of public life that we possibly can. Humanism's goal is to forget God. But humanism leads to that ethical relativism that will destroy our land. It is destroying our culture. It's stealing and destroying our freedom. Because if you cast off God and His authority, then there can ultimately be no freedom. That's what we were saying earlier. Because now, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. You have, you have the breakdown of the family. You have, uh, you have unwanted pregnancies abounding. You have drug and alcohol abuse. You lose any kind of work ethic. You have people killing one another and for, you know, for almost nothing because they've lost respect for human life. You have abortion that takes over. All these terrible ethical things are a result of forgetting God. And so what is it that we're needing? He said, I'm looking out for a man among them who will make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. We desperately need some Christians who understand the times. Who understand what God's word says. They understand what is going on around us. And who will make out the call and say, we need to do what is right. But you know what's happened? The church, and I'm talking about the overall general church, the church has abandoned biblical morality and they find themselves proclaiming ethical relativism because that's what makes them feel most comfortable. How is it that a church such as the uh, Episcopal Church, how can the Episcopal Church get to the point where they're ordaining homosexuals? They get to that point because at some point they've thrown off the authority of God and His Word and says God and His Word are not authoritative anymore. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes and they come to the mess that they find themselves in. And all sorts of liberal theology and liberal churches and godless churches all all around us. I mean, you can go into all the different denominations. Where they are now with what they're advocating when it comes to immorality and the lack of ethics, what they're advocating comes directly from their theology, that when they say there is no God and that His word is not authoritative, it's going to always lead to that kind of ruin and that kind of destruction. And that's why you have a man like this, who I don't even believe he's a, he's a Christian. I don't even know that he's an evangelical Christian. For sure, he's not a fundamental Christian. But you have a man like this, who's just reading the handwriting on the wall, and he's saying, look, if we don't recover some sort of ethical ethic, if we don't recover some sort of morality, it's going to destroy our nation. And he, as a politician, is willing to say it. And pastors are keeping their mouths shut. Because they want to protect their own little programs, keep their own little thing going and build a little crowd. And if you stand for what is right, then you're going to have people who go away offended. What I've said this morning is in no way intended to offend anybody. But we must speak the truth and we must do it in love. We must recognize that there is a higher authority than us who's telling us right from wrong. And we need to follow what he has said. Otherwise we find ourselves being very humanistic. uh, humanistic maybe not in what we've claimed but if you're living like there is no God in your own life if you're living like there is no God who gives rules and gives commands and gives instructions living according to your own ethic and doing what is right in your own eyes then my friend, believe me no matter what you call yourself on the outside you are a humanist. I think we have to look pretty carefully to see how humanistic we are even when it comes to our ethic and say, oh Lord, change me. Mold me. Make me. I want to be under your your authority. You are Lord and Master and I want to serve you. Lord, we do thank you for what you teach us. And we pray that you'll show us how we are humanistic in our thinking and our acting. And I pray, Lord, that you would transform and change us. Allow us to become biblical in our thinking. Biblical in our living. And allow us to be like Ezra, the ultimate wall builder who came in and ministered to the spiritual needs of people. And he was used because he had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Lord, may we teach in America your word to people. As we live it, as we understand it ourselves, may we teach it to others. May we stand for it in law, in business, in government, in school, in ethics, in everything around us. May we stand and point others that there is a God and what he has said is right. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, see you in a few minutes when we start our service.